today on EdgeFX. To address racially motivated violence against Asian Americans, we actually have to do the heavy long-term work of building a society that is not organized around race. That's unfortunately, it's, it's a very um, you know, challenging task, but that's what it's gonna take. Weishan Liu speaks with Claire Jean Kim, professor of political science and Asian American studies at the University of California, Irvine, about anti-Asian racism in an anti-Black world and in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. They discuss the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes during the past year, anti-racist animal studies, and the future of Black-Asian solidarity. Hi, thank you, Claire, for joining us today on EduFX. I want to start the interview with a question about COVID and since the series is about the pandemic. So I think the pandemic once again shows that uh, wildlife markets or wet markets in Asia are extremely misunderstood. And this goes back to your book, Dangerous Crossings, which was published in 2015. It was, it's particularly relevant um, because it shows how debates over animal markets are not just taking place out there in Asia, but it's also a debate that's constantly happening in the United States. What happens is why let animal rights advocacy groups have criticized Chinese and Chinese American immigrants for their filthy and cruel methods of handling live animals. Could you tell us a little bit more about your reaction to um, the earlier media accounts um, of reports that attribute the virus to Asia or Asian bodies? Okay, so from the beginning of the Asian presence in the US, in terms of large numbers of Asians, so I would say the 1850s in California, the arrival of the first large numbers of Chinese immigrants, the Asian body, the Chinese body was seen as a site of disease and contamination. In the 1800s, the diseases that white people thought the Chinese brought or bred in Chinatown in San Francisco were syphilis, smallpox, and other diseases. And so there were periodic efforts to quarantine Chinatown and, you know, set, set apart the Chinese, move them farther and farther away from the city center in order to avoid the contamination of the Asian body. So this was from the beginning about otherness, alienness, foreignness as represented in the Asian body and all of that being a threat, right? So it could be an economic threat as it was with, you know, that's how many white workers viewed Chinese immigrants. It could be a military threat. For example, how Japanese Americans were seen by whites during World War II. It could be an epidemiological threat, right? Which is what we're seeing right now. So this idea of the Asiatic or the Mongolian as being diseased and being a contamination threat to the white body politic, to white civilization, is a very deep thread in U.S. culture. The picture gets more complicated, though, when we think about, you know, some of the facts that we're dealing with. For example, with the live animal markets that I look at in my book, Dangerous Crossings, these markets are in San Francisco's Chinatown, and they're in, you know, many other Asian communities around the world. And, you know, as you mentioned in your, in your question, many white animal advocates describe the conditions in these markets as quote unquote, filthy and cruel. Of course, there's always a cultural aspect to these judgments, but, you know, I think many of us would agree those markets are dirty and inhumane. The Chinese community leaders who were involved in this conflict, because the animal rights advocates were trying to shut down the markets or at least regulate them. And then the Chinese community leaders said, well, if they're dirty, filthy, and cruel, what about U.S. slaughterhouses? 
which is of course true. I mean, anywhere you're raising and killing animals for food, it's filthy and cruel. Yeah. It's not a Chinese thing. It's not an Asian thing. It's just part of the process of raising and killing animals for food. So the Chinese community leader's point was you're selectively choosing to focus on this as an offense when you all are eating meat that's raised in a factory farm and put through a slaughterhouse and it's the same issue. So my response in the book was to say, well, if that's true, that it's culturally just determined what we find repulsive and what we find acceptable, and that all of these things are filthy and cruel, then the answer isn't to say, let's not do anything about either. The answer mm -hmm. is to say, let's do something about both, right? Yeah. Let's do something about killing animals for food. With COVID-19, most people think that it is uh, likely it started as a zoonotic disease, right? Somewhere in Southern China that there was possibly an animal to animal transmission and then an animal to human transmission, possibly in a wet market. So even though we know that Donald Trump has been using phrases like Kung flu and Chinese flu, and we know why he's doing that, right? It's very transparent mm -hmm. that he's trying to use racism as he always does to satisfy his base and possibly to distract attention from the fact that there are now almost 600,000 Americans who've died. Uh, and that's just Americans, not even looking at the global cost of COVID. So we know that he's using, he used those phrases and that that started a continuous wave of uh, anti-Asian harassment and violence. So it's Asian Americans paying the price for his anti-Chinese comments. But these are of course still facts to be dealt with, right? That the COVID-19 virus likely started in a wet market likely started in southern China. So it's not surprising though, I mean, when we look at your question that the virus gets racialized, right? Because if you look at other viruses, they've been racialized. AIDS was racialized as black. Ebola was racialized as black, mm -hmm. you know, and we could go on and on. So everything gets racialized, including viruses and bugs and, you know, diseases, because there are no race-free zones in human existence. We really live in a highly racialized world, and that's kind of across the board. So you mentioned that these perceptions have historical roots. Given that it has a deep history, what do you think, or is it even possible to change public perceptions about racialized bodies or virus? Mm -hmm. I think it is possible, but what it will take to get there is kind of uh, staggering to think about. <laughs> You know, in other words, it's not going to be a public relations campaign or a public education campaign that says, don't associate the virus with Asians. Like, that's not going to work. What would work would be building a society where we no longer organize around race, the issues of who is disposable, who is not, who has value, who does not, and who matters and who does not. As long as we have a society that is organized around race that way, then we will always, as Asian Americans, have certain negative ideas attached to us, just like other racialized groups have negative ideas attached to them, right? So it's only when we get to the point where we say race is a social construction, it's used to dominate and oppress certain people, you know, um, to the benefit of other people. It's only when we get to that point and we can really put race aside that we can possibly get past this specific idea, right? In other words, we have to get rid of race mm -hmm. to get rid of these specific ideas about race. Yeah. And in, I want to say in the later half of the pandemic, Asian anti-Asian violence has also gotten more visibility. I mean, it's always known in Asian communities, but now it's more like in mainstream uh, media outlets. And uh, especially after the Atlanta shootings, one article that I find interesting is the opinion piece in New York Times by Anne Ling Cheng, 
who argues that quote there is something wrong with the way Americans think about who deserves social justice, as though attention to non-white groups, their histories and conditions is only as pressing as the injuries that they have suffered. End quote.、Mm-hmm. And that really struck me because there were just so many articles that came out. What what do you think of this view that there's something wrong with the logic of prioritizing those who seem to suffer more? So, with due respect to Professor Chang, I completely disagree with this argument.、Um, unfortunately, I think the idea that Asian Americans are invisible in U.S. society, that our suffering is invisible, plays right into the hands of white people, the white majority, who are really tired of hearing about the Black freedom struggle,、mm-hmm. and they're just fatigued with it. They don't want to think about it anymore because it asks of them more than some of them want to give. So I sensed when stories about anti-Asian harassment and violence started to come out during the pandemic, I sensed this palpable sense of relief and possibly even excitement on the part of white people and also on the part of mainstream institutions, including the media, because now they could talk about racism but not have to talk about black people. They could actually talk about Asian Americans. It was like a new and exciting, you know, issue to talk about. So rather than not listening to Asian American suffering, I think white people jump on it pretty enthusiastically. That's been my observation, and that what they see in Asian American suffering when we're talking about anti-Asian harassment and violence is how they can perform anti-racism on the cheap.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so they present themselves as being anti-racist by talking about what's happening to Asian Americans, with while ignoring what's happening, you know, on a structural, systematic level. That is on a continuous level to Black Americans. So, you know, in my work, I really talk about structural anti-Blackness as a, an important frame for understanding what we're all seeing. And so, a lot of people in ethnic studies, a lot of activists, talk about white supremacy. So, I believe white supremacy is also operating. But in addition to white supremacy, I think we have to think about anti-Blackness, which Frantz Fanon, the philosopher. Described as negrophobia or this phobic avoidance and hatred of blackness,、mm-hmm. because of our history of racial slavery, because the country was founded on centuries of racial slavery. I, I believe, as following many black studies scholars, that structural anti-blackness is the frame that we're operating in. It's sort of the frame for the U.S. racial order. So, what I think Cheng and other people who are making the same argument are missing is that when you're a not white group. Like Asian Americans, being invisible is about as good as it can get,、mm-hmm. because it's a sign that you're assimilated. It's a sign that you're integrated, at least to some degree. You're not being singled out by the police. You're not being singled out by the prison system. As opposed to, so think about it, Asian invisibility, so-called, as opposed to the hyper visibility of Black people and to a lesser degree Latinx people, right? Whether we're talking about police violence, police murder, incarceration. For Latinx people being held at the border, so that kind of hyper visibility is where you're seeing the greatest amount of trauma and suffering. So I think we don't talk about Asian Americans and racism as much as we talk about anti-blackness because anti-Asian racism is not as systematic and severe as anti-blackness, and I think that's why we don't talk about it. So if we look at hate crime figures, so-called hate crime figures. Mm-hmm. We know in the during COVID, we've seen reported thousands of anti-Asian incidents.、Mm-hmm. You know, some of them have been fatal, and some of them have been physical and really brutal.、Mm-hmm. But still, up to ninety percent are not physical attacks, so they're either shunning or verbal harassment. Now, I am not saying that those are not serious, and I'm not saying I would 
you know, not suffer if I experience those myself. What I'm saying is that it's still important to see that it's only 10% or so that are physical attacks. And when we look at the numbers of violent hate crimes against Asian Americans as opposed to Black Americans, it's still mostly happening to Black Americans and not just because they're twice the percentage of the population that we are. So I think that it's important, instead of saying we're invisible as Asian Americans and complaining about it, I think that's a misreading of the situation and it's a refusal to see that there is in fact an Asian black gap. And this is what I talk about in my new book. Mm -hmm. There is in fact differential statuses between Asian Americans and black people tracing back to slavery. And we can't as Asian Americans say, we're all in the same boat, all of us minorities, we actually have to deal with that gap. And I think that uh, that's the reason I disagree with Professor Chang's uh, argument. Thank you for your clarification. And um, I do have a question about addressing um, anti-Asian hate crimes. And I'm, I'm really glad you pulled up a figure about the nature of these hate crimes that have been occurring. And you were quoted recently in a LA Times article about the superficiality of the new anti-Asian hate crime bill. Um, could you elaborate on what you meant by that? And maybe it has to do with the way anti-Asian hate crime is sort of like identified and the nature of these specific incidents. Yes, so I just gave a talk on this and wrote an article for Ms. Magazine on this, so I am fired up on this issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which the Congress passed and President Biden just signed, so now is law, will not work. Let's start with that first point. Okay. There is no credible evidence that calling things hate crimes and passing more hate crime legislation reduces racial violence um, or does anything to stem that problem. I think it's a way of making Asian Americans feel better mm -hmm. temporarily to say, oh, we got this law. And don't forget, it's Asian American elected officials who introduced the law and they shepherded it to success. And I think they get to show their constituents, oh, we did something for you. Mm -hmm. And the government as a whole gets to say, again, we did something about racism, we did something for Asian Americans. So it won't work, number one. And again, to address racially motivated violence against Asian Americans, we actually have to do the heavy long-term work of building a society that is not organized around race. That's unfortunately, it's, it's a very, um, you know, challenging task, but that's what it's going to take. So I think there's more than this going on, though. It's not just politicians doing something for their constituents to look good. There's more than that going on with this act, the Hate Crimes Act. So what we have to do is look at this Hate Crimes Act and say, how does this act promote certain ideologies about anti-Blackness and protect the carceral system as it is currently set up? And remember, there's a reason activists call it the prison industrial complex, because the number of economically vested interests in this prison complex that we call a carceral state is vast, right? So in the talk that I just gave, I, I highlight two other items. There's, so there's the COVID Hate Crimes Act of 2021. Then there are two other items I thought we should look at it next to. One is what's called the Report of the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the U.S. Mm -hmm. This is a human rights report. International human rights experts put together this report, released it March 2021. And it calls police violence against black people in the United States a crime against humanity, according to international law, mm -hmm. calls for the International Criminal Court to investigate it, calls for the U.S. Congress to basically acknowledge this is a crime against humanity and appoint a commission on operations. Okay, 
So that's the first item. This is a report issued by human rights experts, almost completely ignored in the US media and by US politicians. The second item I wanted you to compare the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act to is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill. Mm -hmm. that, that bill was introduced into the Congress as a result of the protest movement we saw arise last year, mm -hmm. you know, after the murder of George Floyd. So that protest movement, which was the largest protest movement in US history, 15 to 26 million, according to the New York Times, generated momentum for this bill, which essentially, to put it in a nutshell, tries to curb police violence. Okay, it tries to make police more accountable if they act violently and tries to promote certain changes that will help us hold police accountable. That bill, which did pass in the House by a close vote along party lines, is now stuck in the Senate, where it will in all likelihood die. Mm -hmm. So we have a human rights report that's ignored. We have this justice for George Floyd bill that will not pass, that's dead in the Congress, I'm predicting. It may pass in some very watered down form. And then we have the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act passed in the Senate, are you ready? 94 to one, okay? You know how polarized the US political climate is right now. How many things get passed 94 to one? So this is a really, really striking thing. So again, we have to ask ourselves as scholars, as critics, right? Thinking critically about this, how many things is the state accomplishing at once by passing the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act? Number one, it helps them, again, perform anti-racism on the cheap. Number two, it is implicitly saying Asian American lives matter more than black lives and the state cares about Asian American lives and it doesn't care about black lives because the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, the whole preface to the act, if you look up the text of the act, is about hate crimes against Asian Americans during COVID. Okay. And finally, the act reinforces the carceral system. How does it do this? Because it expedites the processing of crimes that are deemed hate crimes. And it also funds state and local law enforcement for programming that seeks to prevent or stop hate crimes, right? So it's giving funding to law enforcement and it's at the same time saying, we're gonna help expedite cases where a crime or an attack is considered a hate crime. Now, you know, if you assault someone and the prosecutor deems it a hate crime, that means your sentence is gonna be longer because that's what it means to call something a hate crime. They tack on more time to your uh, prison sentence. So all of this is building up, beefing up, reinforcing the carceral system at the very moment where Black Lives Matter activists are calling for defunding the police mm -hmm. and abolition of the prison system and replacing the prison system with restorative justice, which we know works better and is more compassionate and will help us get to the kind of society we actually want to live in. So. It's very much, you could see the state as in a way using Asian Americans as an instrument in this case, right? They're using the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act to accomplish certain things in terms of anti-Blackness. It's also though a story of how Asian Americans self-weaponize, right? Because there are business interests in the Asian American community, politicians in the Asian American community who are pro-police, who you know agree with this kind of bill who want this kind of bill and so they have a certain kind of political agenda political ideology that we are now seeing through the passage of this bill and so i think in terms of my what i said was sort of a long-term solution to these attacks on asian americans that is actually building a society where race is not an organizing principle for who gets what i think the best route to that the, the clearest route i see 
maybe the only route I see is the Black freedom struggle, which I believe has been the most important freedom struggle in the history of humankind. And I go back to the Black feminists in the Kambahi River Collective in the 70s who said, until Black women are free, and we can expand that to Black trans people and other, right, we can expand that phrase, but until Black women are free, none of us will be free, right? So people, everyone in society, their freedom actually depends on lifting up and liberating the people who are at the very bottom of society, who are held at the very bottom of society. So for Asian Americans, I think this means we have to rethink what is our relationship to the regimes of private property, policing, and the prison system. And do we want to go down this road where we are contradicting Black Lives Matter and fighting for bills like the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, or do we instead want to join the Black freedom struggle and actually advance our own interests in doing that? I'm glad you brought up how the bill actually reinforced the Castro system. I was pretty disturbed when I learned about how they can now introduce like undercover cops in New York City, in Chinatown, and in other Asian communities to sort of like monitor. And it's really not the first time Asians have been instrumentalized in managing racial relations in the United States, right? Going from affirmative action and other, other incidents. And I think you're one of the most prominent scholars on race relations between Asians and Black Americans. Your 1999 essay on racial triangulation has been immensely influential, and it's often cited to show how Asians and Blacks could be pitted against each other in the neoliberal multicultural era. I guess let's go back a little bit. What motivated you to write about Black-Asian relations in the late 90s? What motivated me was I needed a dissertation topic. And I... <laughs> <laughs> That's a great motivation. And I'm sitting in the lobby of the political science building. <laughs> I'm saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to write about? Because I had one idea and it got shot down by my <laughs> dissertation about it. And then someone came through and then threw me the front section of the New York Times, because in those days people actually read the paper in hard copy. And he threw me the front section and said, why don't you write on that? And I looked at it. The cover story was, Black activists boycotting uh, Korean-owned grocery in Brooklyn. And that's what I decided to do. So what interested me, though, about that conflict was, was that I said, why are two minority groups fighting against each other, mm -hmm. right? I, I didn't understand why that would happen. And I thought, I initially thought, oh, it must be the scapegoating argument that Black people are venting their frustration upon Asian people because they're standing nearby and they can do it. So I, I found that, of course, you know, my argument was quite different and quite critical of the scapegoating argument, but that was my initial interest. Do you have any new thoughts on this triangulation? Um, how would you revise it in response to the moment that we're in? Because we are, I feel like I am seeing a new wave of Black Asian coalitional efforts. What do you think are the grounds for solidarity between the two groups? Which kind of coalition efforts are you referring to? I'm curious about that. I think uh, I'm maybe referring to more of a local one in Madison. So uh, Freedom Inc., that is a community that is mainly led by Black women and also Southeast Asians and the Hmong communities in the Midwest. So like that is one example, but that might just be more localized and I have a bias because that's what I'm seeing in Madison. Yeah, I mean, and one of the reasons I'm asking is I, I think I've heard of that one and I've certainly heard of things happening at a local level or things being attempted at a local level. Yeah. But what's, what is interesting is the degree to which it's local, right? Mm -hmm. That there doesn't seem to be anything beyond that that's happening, which isn't to, to say that's not incredibly important what's happening at a local level. So 
I think that in terms of what are the possibilities for Black Asian solidarity in the future, I think they're, the possibilities are good if certain things happen and not so good if things continue to be the way they are. Mm -hmm. And also I'll explain what I mean by that. I think what we have to look at, you know, many of your audience people are academics and used to thinking about social structure, right? Mm -hmm. And social structure really influences interracial conflict, including the conflict between Asian Americans and black people because of this differential positioning that I was talking about. So if things continue the way they are with Asian Americans and black people differentially situated in the racial order, the prospects for any meaningful sustained coalition are pretty low. And if you look back at history, there's been more tension and conflict between these communities than coalition. Now, it's not to say there hasn't been any, right? There has been, some, especially in the 60s. Mm -hmm. You look at the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton's cooperation with the Red Guards and the other Black Panther Party cooperation with the Red Guards. There have been moments of it, you know, the Filipino and Mexican-American farm worker unions. There are moments of it, and, and those are important moments. But in terms of why it, we don't see it more often in, or in a more sustained way, I believe it's because of this differential positioning, which is usually not acknowledged by anyone, right? This is kind of a repressed truth because it's inconvenient for political coalition building. Some people think, how can you have a coalition if you start talking about the things that divide you? You have to kind of push that aside and focus on what brings you together. But the problem with that, in my view, is history shows us that doesn't work all that well. Maybe we would get farther with our political coalitions if we started with the truth, which is that Asian Americans are differently situated and that it doesn't mean we're not subject to white supremacy. It doesn't mean we're not discriminated against and sometimes killed because of race mm -hmm. and that we don't suffer because of race. It just means it's a different position than black people. We were not enslaved. We, we were not subjected to Jim Crow. We are not subjected to mass incarceration and over-policing. Therefore, there is a different set of issues and a different situation, and we have to be honest about that to build political relationships. So the new book that I'm writing, and I'm, I've finished a draft, so it's with the publisher now, I hope it'll be out early next year, is called Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World. And it's trying to revise the racial triangulation theory. So that theory I came out in an article I wrote in 1999, and really there I was saying, Asian Americans are seen as between black and white, in terms of who's inferior and superior, but they're also seen as more foreign than either one. And that piece is having its moment. Like there are some people who are kind of talking about it now yeah. as of what's going on. And like, mm -hmm. you know, even there's a, supposedly, according to some former students of mine, they're arguing about it on Instagram, things like that. So that's when you know you've made it, right? That's nice. Tweeting. <laughs> but at the very moment that's happening, of course, I'm saying, well, I don't agree with that theory anymore. Yeah, I created it. <laughs> Yeah, so what the problem with the racial triangulation argument, in my view, is it one of its premises is that black people are insiders, that they're less foreign than Asian. So it's true they're not associated with a foreign power, but to say they're insiders, I think I now see, having read a lot of black studies and read more black history, is a fallacy to say they're insiders because they were given black people after the Civil War, they were given the right to naturalize, citizenship rights, the right to vote. But we know what those rights actually meant in terms of black mm -hmm. just They were on paper. They were rights that were not honored in practice. So once I revise that essential part of the model, I think the model doesn't work. So the new book, what I'm really trying to do is say there are two forces governing the U.S. racial order. 
white supremacy and anti-blackness and what happens if you know we we see all of these histories about asian americans written with white supremacy in mind but they don't talk about anti-blackness what happens if we bring anti-blackness back into the picture and reread asian american history in that light what happens so i draw upon philosopher lewis gordon's two principles he says there are two principles structuring the u.s order be white but above all don't be black okay so i translate that into white supremacy and anti-blackness and i come out with the argument Asian Americans are not white, they're considered not white, but above all, not black. And what this means is we are, as Asian Americans, subjected to various, you know, denigrations and dispossessions as not white people. But we also have something that's a property that I would call not blackness. Mm -hmm. And this allows us to move into white neighborhoods, to move into certain kinds of white workplaces, to intermarry with white people to get more educational opportunities than black people, to not be discriminated against in bank lending, for example, compared to black people. So the focus of the book is really saying, let's look at this society in terms of structural anti-blackness, how the phobic avoidance and hatred of blackness forms the foundation since slavery for what this society is about and how there's this imperative on the part of the powerful to reproduce structural anti-blackness. Then how do we understand Asian American history in relation to those facts? And I also try, perhaps not enough, but I do try to also articulate structural anti-blackness with capitalism, to neoliberal mm-hmm. capitalism, to talk about how they work together to determine who matters and who doesn't. Yeah. I was also struck by your earlier point that the examples of coalitions that you mentioned um, in history, it seems like a lot of them are organized around class, right? Like farm workers and laborers. Um, so would you say, how does class come into this? Like, would inequality be one of the issues that needs to be addressed? Now that I'm saying it, I realize it's obvious. But um, yeah, I just want to like make sure that I'm on the same page as you. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of being written and said about Cedric Robinson's book, Black Marxism, and his whole framework of racial capitalism. One of the interesting debates, I think, there is we know race and capitalism work together, right? That they're sort of intertwined with one another, articulated with one another. And one thing about using the phrase racial capitalism, Cedric Robinson started to refer to that, is we may lose sight of the fact that these are also two separate forces, right? That these aren't, they're not the same thing. They're not one thing. So for instance, um, if you look at racism alone, you you have to look at structural anti-blackness, you have to look at white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. So I prefer to say race and capitalism and sort of leave open the question of how they're articulated, even though we know they're articulated, than to say racial capitalism. But okay, I'll give you an example. Like if we look at this report called The Color of Coronavirus, which is available online, you just Google that, and it's produced by, I think it's a group called American Public Media. And they provide up-to-date figures on which racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. have had the highest COVID-19 mortality rates. And one of the interesting things there is that Black people are among the groups that have had the highest mortality rates. It's also Indigenous people and also Pacific Islanders and also some Latinx folks, too. White people have, as you would expect, lower COVID mortality rates than those groups. And then Asian Americans have even lower COVID mortality rates than white people. So I think this is, you know, it's a good argument to say this is probably related to class in some important way, right? So Mm -hmm. because people who have more economic resources tend to be better educated, they tend to 
have better health care, access to better health care. They're not discriminated against by their health care providers in the way poor people are, and especially black poor people are. So I think it probably has something to do with class. So probably lower Asian American mortality rates from COVID are related to higher class status for Asian Americans than some other groups. Now, of course, anytime you're talking about class and Asian Americans, you immediately have to say this all breaks down into a heterogeneous collage because mm -hmm. Asian Americans are so diverse, heterogeneous in terms of national origin, religion, culture, socioeconomic profiles, etc. So there's some like Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders, if you consider them part of that group, you may not, you may. Many of them do not consider themselves part of that group precisely because their socioeconomic profile is so different from, for example, from East Asians. And then you look at East Asian groups, like the Chinese American population bifurcated, right? Both poor and super wealthy, and then all in between. And then South Asians also tend to be affluent, the immigrants who come here. So it's a very mixed picture, but you know, median household income for Asian Americans higher than even white people. So there's something going on here with class, but it's not separated from race, right? Because if you look at my book, the argument would be the reason we have so many poor black people is because class is connected to race, as so many Marxist scholars have already pointed out to us for most of the last century. Black people are held down into, you know, lower paying jobs, temporary jobs with no benefits. They tend to be targeted by over-policing in the prison system, which means they tend to you know, experience more unemployment. So there are all kinds of reasons why being black tends to lead to lower class outcomes. Not always, obviously, they're wealthy and successful black people, but I'm saying as a structural tendency, right? And Asian Americans, you know, if you follow the argument in my book, you would say they're not held down in the same way black people are, even though they're disadvantaged relative to white people. And that's an important thing to be disadvantaged relative to white people. It's, it bears commenting on and trying to change, but relative to black people, they are not held down in the same ways. And that means they're going to have more socioeconomic mobility. They're going to have more of a chance to you know, move upwards in terms of class. And that I think we're seeing in terms of educational attainment, intermarriage with white people, uh, moving into white neighborhoods, getting into certain kinds of occupations, etc. One of the things I love about your work is that it brings all these different types of formations together. So we have like race and class, but also, I mean, in your earlier work, you also think about like animal species. What advice do you have for scholars or students who are trying to do research or teach human-animal studies with anti-racist goals in mind? So to bring all the, the things together we've been talking about. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm actually consulting next week with people at a small college who are interested in doing animal studies and they want to try to start out doing it right, that is, in an anti-racist way. And it's not an easy thing to answer. It's not an easy challenge to meet. The animal movement is primarily white. The majority of animal studies scholars are white. I do think that's changing and I'm excited about those changes, but it is historically it's been true. So I think in my own work, I've really shifted in how I think about race in connection with animals. Dangerous Crossings, the book you mentioned, which is my second book, there I was really saying, well, you have an animal advocacy movement and then you have a racial justice movement and they clash sometimes, right? As it, for example, in the case of the San Francisco Chinatown Live Animal Markets. And when they clash, what I wanted to say in that book was, we have to understand that they're related, these two issues of racial domination and species domination. 
And if we're in one movement, we should embrace and accept the other movement and support the other movement instead of seeing them as antagonistic. So that was like an initial position for me. I then moved slightly to, to writing this piece on the killing of the gorilla Harambe in the Cincinnati Zoo in 2016, I believe. And in that piece, I really say, look, the blackness in particular, not race, but generally, but blackness in particular and ideas of animality, especially apes and primates, these things are so interconstituted in the Western imagination. They're, they're literally inseparable. I mean, if you go through negative depictions of blackness from like 1500 to the present, the ape metaphor comes up over and over and over again. It's inescapable. So as people who are interested in animals, we have to be thinking about how is a very idea of animality or species difference interwoven with the idea of blackness in a way that you know we have to reckon with or if you're interested in race issues you also have to be asking that question and there are a couple ways that i think that these things come together that don't work so i'll give you an example of what i think not to do there's this book by gary francione called animal rights the abolitionist approach and animal liberationists that is people who believe in ending the instrumentalization of animals and not just making things more humane for animals, right? Animal liberationists, some of them call themselves abolitionists. And my problem, I was going to say my beef with that, my problem with that is, see, my language is very speciesist, and even though I'm thinking about it, one of the problems with that is that if you read Francione's book, I'm sorry, it's a co-authored book, but I can't remember right now who the other author is. If you read the book, they say, Black slavery, racial slavery was successfully ended. So we can also end animal slavery, right? So literally they're making the argument for animal abolition by disavowing the black struggle and saying that problem's done. We fixed that problem. Okay, th that's one problem with dealing with that and then with dealing with those two issues in that way. Yeah. Also, if you look at this book, it has the artwork of Sue Ko, um, who I, she's one of my favorite artists as her artwork on the front and the back of the book. And on the front, it's like animals in chains. Every, it's a very you know dismal picture of all these animals chained and suffering. And it also has pictures of human black slaves, a man, I believe a kneeling man in chains and then a woman. On the back of the book, it says vegan, the sun is rising, all the animals are out of chains and they're dancing around. And I'm looking at the back saying, where are the black people now? Where are the slaves? in the vegan scenario, they're gone. They're not even there, uh -huh. right? And so I don't think in any way Suko meant this to be anti-Black, right? That's not at all what I'm saying. I really admire her work and love her work. What I'm saying is it's, it's sort of symptomatic of animal studies if we yeah. use the Black experience instrumentally to just talk about animals and we then just cast away the, you know, the, the chain slaves when we're talking about veganism, it's not enough. We have to ask ourselves, what is the place of black people in a vegan world, right? In a world where the sun has come up and all the chains have come off, where are they? And so I think it's really, that's sort of the question is for those of us who are interested in animal liberation to be asking ourselves. And I think, so the, this is a long roundabout way of answering the question this way. I would say, you can't just say as an animal advocate, I'm going to dress up what I'm doing with a little bit of anti-racism. I'm going to get a few black people in here on the panel and make it all mm -hmm. look good. You actually have to take seriously that 
race as a system of meaning and power is interconnected with species as a system of meaning and power, that they're inextricably connected. You have to actually do a deep dive into comparative race studies, and I would say especially black studies, and learn about and engage those issues and that material. Otherwise, you're not actually getting to the root of the problem with animals and you're not going to, even on a strategic level, you're not going to advance the animal movement if it seems at odds with Black Lives Matter and the Black Freedom Struggle, or if it seems just as likely disconnected from that, right? You actually have to be able to show the connections and it's very hard for non-Black people to do that because as a not-Black person myself, when I have raised, like in connection with the Harambe paper, blackness and animality in the same place, you know, mostly people listen to me politely, but once in a while it has really offended people. It has really bothered a few black people in the audience. And so that's why I'm so excited that there's this new generation of incredibly talented black authors, writers, who are writing both about blackness and about animality. I'll name a few, Afco, her sister Silco, uh, Joshua Bennett, Alicia Gums, Amy Breeze Harper, and Benedict Boisserong. Some of them are independent scholars, some of them are in the academy, and they're all writing about the connection between anti-blackness and speciesism, and they're all interested in those issues, and it's incredibly exciting to read their work. So for those of us who are not black, it's, again, it's not a simple topic to talk about and and there's no easy solution to that thank you so much for joining us today those were great answers thank you so much weishan that was weishan Liu and claire jean kim in conversation weishan is a phd candidate in literary studies at the university of wisconsin madison her research focuses on contemporary poetry affect theory and the place of ethnic studies in a neoliberal, multicultural environment. Dr. Kim is a professor of political science and Asian American studies at the University of California, Irvine. Her forthcoming book, entitled Asian Americans in an Anti-Black World, will be published in 2022. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Weishan Liu and me, Ben Giuliano. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always... Keep up with the steady flow of great content about culture and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.